You're listening to the Washington Hospitality Industry Podcast, your primary source of information related to the hospitality industry in Washington State. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Ron O. I'm the general manager of the Holiday Inn Express in North Seattle, and I'm the current chair of the Washington Hospitality Association. Thank you so much for attending our Washington State and National State of the Industry. For questions during this presentation, please use the Q&A feature in this app. Just click the Q&A button, type in your question, and hit submit or enter. <clears throat> While I'm a hotelier, one of my first jobs as a full-service hotel uh, was at a full-service hotel owned by my family. This hotel included a full-service restaurant and bar. And one of my most distinct memories of this business was while on a break from, my, from school, my family had, were, we were supposed to meet in the restaurant for dinner and the restaurant was packed but my father was nowhere to be seen. So after a while, a waiter came out and he said, you know, uh, your father's busy with something. Can you go, just go ahead and order what you want to order, right? Uh, so we, we ordered our food, but I felt something wasn't right. So I went to the back of the house and there I found my father. He was wearing his best suit and tie and also the brown vinyl dish apron. He was buried behind a mountain of dishes in the dish bed. The dishwasher had called in sick and, and last minute and the restaurant was packed and there was no one available to call. So he had rolled up his sleeves and started washing dishes. I knew he had been looking forward to seeing his kids since we had been away at school. Uh, and the last thing that he had wanted, wanted was to be doing dishes in the restaurant. But as business owners, we do what we have to do to keep our businesses alive. We spend the rest of the we spent the rest of the evening washing dishes, and my dad was busy in the restaurant. And later that night, as we were eating our cold dinners, you know, together, my dad said to me, "Thank you. I'm sorry you had to deal with that, but Merry Christmas." It was by far one of the most memorable Christmases I've ever had. Our industry. Our industries have had one of the most difficult years ever, and we're still dealing with it. As restaurateurs, we know when to roll up our sleeves and do the dirty work. But this time, in this situation, with this pandemic, there's been very little that we could do. The most frustrating thing is that we've had so little control over our own businesses, over our own employees, and over our own livelihood. But I'm proud I'm proud to let you know that during this pandemic, the Washington Hospitality Association has had their sleeves rolled up and they've been elbow deep in the bureaucracy and red tape of the Washington state government fighting for you. They've been fighting for your businesses and fighting to keep your lights on. And now please allow me to introduce your chief dishwasher and also our CEO of the Washington Hospitality Association. Mr. Anthony Anton. 
Wow, what, a, what an introduction, Ron. Thank you so much. And thanks for all your hard work and the board and all the volunteers in everything uh, you do to, to move us forward. We have a packed agenda today, um, and we're really excited to have uh, our, our, our main guest here with us uh, in uh, Tom Benet, but I'll get to him in just a minute. Uh, I, this does not happen, and the organization really uh, can't have the success that it has without our sponsors. And so before I get into introducing everyone, I do want to introduce uh, or thank our sponsors, uh, our credit card program partner, uh, U.S. Bank. Uh, big thank you to U.S. Bank and Elevon for the sponsorship of the event and their continued partnership programs. Um, our members are, that are enrolled in our program are now saving on average 3400 a month. So a big win uh, to have that for us and for our, our partners in our programship our, in our programs. Also want to thank our healthcare solutions partner, UHG. Um, we're excited to have United Healthcare Group as one of the sponsors for today's event. You may have heard about the special pricing they're offering on health insurance for our members, but you may not know in the past year they've expanded many of their offers to keep um, you and your employees healthy and safe and covered. So a uh, big thank you to United Healthcare and their constant partnership in trying to make our industry stronger. And our third sponsor for today, uh, Earn West, our workers comp uh, third party administrator, uh, the very definition of being a great partner. For 25 years, Earn West has been helping employers like you save money, time and frustration on their workers comp costs. We are so proud to have them as a partner um, in all the things we do for claims management services and stepping up for events like this and, and being a great sponsor. So thank you to US Bank, UHG and Earn West for sponsoring today's event. With that, um, I, I want to uh, introduce, oh, there we go. <laughs> I want to introduce uh, our uh, our panel and the folks joining us today. Uh, I think for the first time in 20 years, we are very proud to have the CEO of the National Restaurant Association, uh, Tom Benet. Tom is joining us uh, today. And uh, Tom came on in his role in the middle of a pandemic. Cause you know, why, why do something easy, Tom? And your team has really been amazing and we're so thankful to have you with us today. Joining him on the panel uh, will be past Association Chair and uh, our representative on the National Restaurant Association Board of Directors, Brett Stewart, uh, who is a quick service operator with, he's the pretzel guy and, and Presalter. Is that your title or your company there, Brett? <laughs> All right, we'll call, we'll call it a little bit of both. Uh, also want to welcome uh, Jenny Rojanastina. Uh, Jenny is a restaurant owner and operator of Atlas Fair and the Thai restaurant in Wenatchee. Uh, so glad you're, you're able to join us today, Jenny, and your volunteerism this session. Uh, I was just saying, I think if the staff took a member on favorite members, you are in the top five. You've been an incredible volunteer and advocate on behalf of the industry this year. And speaking of incredible volunteers and uh, advocates, Brian Marino. Uh, Brian is our incoming uh, chair, he's currently our vice chair and he is the owner and operator of the McDonald's in Othello, Washington. Brian, uh, thanks for being on our panel today. And so looking forward to a great chat with uh, the, the four of you and, uh, and our national chair who we're honored to have here today, 
Jenny, do you want to get us kicked off? Absolutely. Thank you for the introductions. It's a pleasure to be here today with the Washington Hospitality Association. Um, Tom, to kick us off, can you help uh, describe the National Restaurant Association in the context where a local member would understand uh, your role and entity? Sure. First of all, it's great to be here with all of you and thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity. Yeah, I think about the, the role that all of you play in hospitality in general, but certainly as a restaurant owner operator, you know, doing that is more than a full-time job. You're spending time, obviously, operating the restaurant, greeting customers, doing all those things. And we think about our role at the National Restaurant Association is trying to make your role, your job easier. And the way we do that is through advocating for policies at the certainly the federal level or partnering with the state organizations to do that at a local level. Just anything we can do to help make running and owning and operating a restaurant easier and more effective and successful. It's obviously very competitive business and customer sentiment is always changing. So we know that. And we have an arm that provides a lot of insight. So we have a research group that provides quarterly and monthly uh, research and insights that we share across the industry, make sure that the industry is aware of the things that are going on. In addition, we try to help uh, operators with data-driven decision-making. So a lot of that work that's done out of that research group flows to all of the members across the country and really tries to help create the environment where people have access to the type of tools that they would need to, to be effective and successful. And then last but not least, I'd say we have a, an organization focused on the development of employees in the industry through our educational foundation and through the Multicultural Food Service and Hospitality Alliance. So we can talk more about those, but those organizations are really focused on the employees in the industry and making sure that we all as industry operators are getting what we need from, uh, from an employee base. Great, hey Tom. Um, You've done a great job so far in a challenging, very challenging year, your first year as CEO of the association. What is something that you're proud of that you've delivered on behalf of the industry and our members so far? Well, let me start by saying that no, no one of us, you know, does all this by ourselves. I've got an amazing team behind me, including, you know, 52 state and uh, territory organizations like you all at the Washington Hospitality Group. So it's been a huge team effort, but I would say one of the, certainly the biggest things that's happened is the several rounds of relief that have come in different forms, whether it was the original PPP that happened right before I got here, but we pushed through the Flexibility Act, which was trying to, to shape that to make sure it was satisfying the needs of restaurant owners and operators. Uh, certainly things like the, the second round of that, the employee retention tax credit, or this most recent restaurant revitalization fund. Those are just a couple of examples of how we've come together to support the industry's needs. But in addition, as I talked about the employee side, very proud of the work that the foundation did around the Restaurant Employee Relief Fund. You probably know, but raised over $22 million for employees, gave out over 40,000 uh, grants to restaurant employees who were affected early days of the pandemic. Uh, so things like that, including the hopes work that we do to give second chance employees the opportunity to work in this industry are just a couple of things that, that I get excited about and I'm proud that we as the National Restaurant Association were able to accomplish this last year. Tom, thank you. To jump in and, uh, on the relief discussions, um, are there any additional relief discussions that are uh, currently being discussed in addition to the programs that you just talked about? Well, the first and foremost, we're asking for more dollars for the restaurant revitalization fund. 
as you probably know, I mean, that fund is going to go pretty quickly. And while $28.6 billion is great, uh, we had asked for about $120 billion. So we're well short of what we believe the industry needs to fully recover. Uh, as late as last, uh, end of last week, I was on Fox News and we were talking about this topic. They were asking about, you know, what's going to happen with, as some of the funding runs out. And we're out there talking with legislators across the country right now, reinforcing the, the importance that this industry, hospitality in general, has in all of our communities and the importance of ensuring that the hospitality industry and specifically in our case, the restaurant side uh, comes through this with shining colors because we all know how important it is to the communities we all live and work in. So um, we're hopeful, um, but you know, with all the other requests out there, we're, we're certainly excited and proud that we were able to get some industry specific funding, but uh, as we all know, uh, we need more. Tom, first, just thank you again for all of your work on this and, and what you've done on behalf of the industry. And then kind of as you've highlighted, you know, restaurants continue to be noted as one of, if not the hardest hit during the pandemic. But given the array of national, state, and local policies from fully closed to fully open and that spectrum of compliance within, how do the national and state associations facilitate that conversation around standards to ease the consumer and business experiences? Well, look, I think it's been one of the most interesting learnings for me as, as I've come into this role is the collaboration required between the national and the states is incredibly important. And we, I certainly have believed from day one, and I talked literally the first time I addressed the state associations and the team at the national organization, the importance of us coming together as one industry. And the reality is when we do that, we're incredibly powerful, both at a federal and a state level. And so we continue to talk about ways we can make sure that our communications are crisp, that we're talking the right issues and the right topics, and we're getting to the right folks who are making those decisions, regardless of what side of the aisle they're on or whether they're a, a federal or a state uh, legislator. So I think it's a, it's a matter of really making sure we're communicating at a high level. We understand what the key and core issues are for both the states and the federal, and then we're dealing with those nuances that happen. One early example of things we tried to, to recognize is that, you know, we saw this huge disparate thing happening state by state and even municipality by municipality. So we, we got together the governors across the country. We also got together the mayors through some of the forums that they interact. And we started to talk about these issues and why they were so important that we deal with them as consistently as possible. As we all know, that didn't happen uh, often. But I think the, the need to continue to reinforce that this is an industry that has got all the right things in place, we've done all the right things, that we just need their support to make sure that we use the facts, the information, and the data to make good business decisions. And when we do that, we've seen positive outcomes. But it's hard. And you guys know that. I'm certainly not telling you anything you haven't all experienced over this last year. Yeah, I think, you know, Washington State, being in the West, we're pretty relatively liberal, pretty blue, uh, certainly federally. So with you know, some of the other states being more conservative, how do you, how do you balance the differences between you know, our constituents, our diners, our restaurant owners, our state with some of those that are you know, very, very differently aligned in the, in the country? Well, I think that that's a great example of how we have to work together. I mean, I think you all are focused primarily on the things happening within your state, and it's our responsibility to make sure you have visibility to everything going on across the country. 
Uh, so one of the ways we try to do that is make sure not only you have visibility, you know, Anthony and the team there has visibility what's happening federally, but also if it's helpful to see what's happening in other states and use some of that as best practices. Uh, you're right though, the, the differences that I've seen and probably one of the biggest surprises for me coming into this role is dealing with those nuances state by state. And unfortunately at times, I think in the past year, sometimes politics played a bigger role in some of those decisions than we'd all probably like, um, but it's reality. And so we have to work together to work through those situations. And I'll come back to the point about data, analytics, information. You know, Our role I think is to make sure that people have the right information and as broad of set of information as possible to make those decisions that are best for their constituent groups. Um, but we, you know, we know we're never going to be satisfying everyone all the time, but I think it's our role to make sure that we're, we're sharing as much of the information as possible and certainly getting the facts out in front of people and into the right decision makers hands. All right, that's, that's great. You know, I, I have another, uh, another quick question for you. I was brought up on one of our more passionate members, um, and many of us share that as well. And I wanted to know if there's any other pr uh, progress into looking at changing the National Restaurant Association's name from the NRA so that when we introduce and say we're on the board of the NRA, <laughs> or when you go to search online under Google, look up NRA, it's, you know, we just don't come up. I mean, can you tell us, uh, and I know you came in at a trying time and, and from my time on the board, I know we were looking at that a little earlier, but uh, an update on that might would be, would be nice. Yeah, you know, interestingly, when I was going through the interview process, uh, it, it came up and I was asked, you know, what was my perspective on it? And my first question to the search committee and to the folks who were asking was, what are we trying to accomplish? I mean, I understand the, you know, the, the moniker and, and I've been educated that, you know, everyone works hard to not say NRA, but to talk about the National Restaurant Association or its educational foundation. But for me, it was trying to understand what are we trying to accomplish? Is it the external view? Is it for ourselves? Is it just that obviously that connection we don't like with the other NRA? Um, Ironically, it's actually in the strategic plan as well. So when I was handed the strategic plan from 2020 to 2024, um, one of the objectives or initiatives is to actually change the name. So we've done some work. We're continuing to have dialogue around it. I think what's important and that, you know, you all can help us with this too, is what, what are we looking to accomplish? It's, I understand the changing the name part, but I think it's equally as important that whatever we would settle on, if we make that change, that it also reinforces what it is we stand for. And I, I think one of the challenges that we run into is being really clear about what we stand for, wh what that means, and therefore how people would act based on whatever that new name might, might come across as. Um, so restaurant obviously is very important to a lot of our constituent members, um, but we also know hospitality is a big part of what we all do as our you know, food service is a big uh, you know, segment beyond restaurants. So we've had lots of discussion about it. I think there's more work to be done. And the, the long-winded answer is, I think you could see us making a change at some point. I just don't know exactly what that's gonna be yet. And I think we need to enlist uh, perspectives from a lot of people. Thank you, Tom. Having done some rebranding myself uh, on other projects, I know it's a really big initiative and especially imagine at a national scale with such an important organization you lead. Um, speaking of messages, I want to talk about, um, on a national level, we've heard a lot of messages about indoor dining being dangerous. What's being done to reassure, uh, to reassure the consumers that indoor dining is safe? Well, first and foremost, thanks for bringing that up, Jenny. I think it's been one of those other topics that's been shocking to me, the 
amount of information that I would call sometimes misinformation. As anyone who's in this industry knows that we're probably one of the most thoughtful as it comes to cleanliness standards, obviously for food safety, but even if you think about our facilities in general, we know how important it is to our guests to be able to come into a, a safe and clean environment. And so when we've seen some of these uh, studies that have come out and have been publicized, that you know, restaurants are either the cause of the issue or not a safe place to be, especially as it relates to indoor dining. And we've even seen some re related to outdoor dining. First and foremost, we go back to the facts. We have in some cases been very visibly uh, out there communicating against the information, challenging people to share where that information came from, what was the basis for the information. I've personally written letters to some of the folks who came out with some of the studies and asked for them to sit down with me to talk about why the information was out and presented the way that it was. Candidly, a lot of the information gets misrepresented in the media, and that's just an unfortunate fact of, of what happens uh, out there. But to specifically answer your question, and probably most importantly, we want to make sure that we're educating consumers with the right information and the right facts. And one of the things that we did uh, last fall is we created something called the Serve Safe Dining Commitment. And the dining commitment was designed really to educate consumers about why they should feel safe and comfortable going back into restaurants at a time when, you know, there was a question as to whether they should be or not. And there was a lot of this information out there being shared. And so we were fortunate enough, we have, as you know, lots of great partners in this industry. And so with the support of many of those national supplier manufacturer partners, we were able to put out a advertisement that actually uh, was out there both in the, you know, social media, as well as radio and TV, they talked about what we're doing as an industry to make our environment safe for guests. It talked about the standards that are in place, the type of training that people go through, the certification that's required. In addition to that, we had a logo that was created where an operator could put that on their door and communicate to guests that when they saw that certification, that they were a safe environment. Consumers could actually even go on the website and look at that and see what that meant and understand that these standards were being followed by this restaurant. So it's one example. I think that it could have gone even broader than it did. I think we had a pretty good take for it. Many states had similar programs. And so in some cases, states had their own program to do the same type of thing. But again, we see our responsibility to educate as much as anything about what this industry is all about, what we do, whether it's from creating jobs or creating a safe environment for people to, uh, to dine. And so that uh, that's just one example of what we tried to do last year to to reinforce that. We're having more conversations now about in 2021 with vaccinations now and all the things that have happened. How do we reinforce that same messaging to the guests that are out there and, and wondering whether it's safe to go back out or not? There's a whole lot to unpack there. Uh, as we get close to wrapping up our, our time asking questions this morning, I wanted to remind our attendees to please use the Q&A function as, as we're gonna get close to that in a minute. Um, but if we could shift our focus over towards innovation, I think this is one interesting thing that we've seen so many organizations and restaurants, you know, convert into grocery stores, uh, expand their offerings across mobile and delivery platforms, and, and finding new vehicles for consumer engagement. I'm curious, like what, what new trends or behaviors do you see sustaining beyond the pandemic? It's a great question, Ryan. And, you know, we, we, I talked to a lot of restaurant operators and I, these are, this will be a summarization of some of the things that, that we've heard that people, you know, would continue to, to focus on and believe that they could be here for the long term. Uh, technology in general, as we know, has just exploded. We, we hear from folks that, 
Some would say that the technology advances that happened in the last year would have normally in a normal environment probably taken five years to get to. And whether that's delivery applications, because now more people who maybe were not predisposed to using things like that are willing to go out and use them. You know, a technology that we all thought may have been dying, like QR codes, all of a sudden came back and people are using QR codes to, to be, you know, contactless menus. So technology, both front of the house and back of the house, we're seeing is something that, that's going to stick. And I think it's a matter just of how much of that sticks and which pieces are used by different, you know, formats uh, of restaurants. Secondly, things like menu streamlining. I don't know if this one will stick, but we've heard that I think a lot of folks learned that by streamlining their menu, they could actually save some expense within the restaurant and that they found the guests, you know, were, were fine with, you know, the streamlined menus, as long as they focused on the right things and the things the guests were looking for. Some examples of that comfort food seemed to have spiked during the pandemic and things, some of those trends that we had seen for years and some of the healthier items seem to have fallen off. We'll see if that changes. My sense is those were positive trends early on and they'll probably come back. Uh, but the streamlining of menus may be something that, that sticks, especially if someone had had a very broad menu in the past. Alcohol to go, something that for many operators and certainly in many states was a lifeline during the pandemic. We're seeing more and more states pass that legislation for permanently, which would allow folks who are taking, you know, product away from the restaurant to eat at home or on the go uh, to be able to be able to take an alcohol or cocktail uh, to go with that. There, there's lots of positives to that. There are obviously some concerns as well and the alcoholic beverage uh, industry has been working closely with us to make sure that whatever legislation gets passed still allows for the safety and security that's necessary with those products. And then I think the last thing I'd just say is, you know, there's been a lot of talk about ghost kitchens. And I think that they mean different things to different people, but this idea of think about a different way of catering is how I try to talk about it. I think that's how generally people can get their mind around what that means. It might be servicing different products than the restaurant normally serves out of that same footprint. It might mean creating to-go products when you don't even have a normal physical footprint for people to come into. But this idea that you can build brands and you can use existing back kind of back of the house capability to build brands and sell products without having to have the same physical footprint feels like something that we're going to see more of. And it's certainly accelerating, albeit a small part of the industry today. So just a couple of things that we've heard uh, pretty regularly from, from our uh, operators around the country. Thank you, Tom. Kind of building on that question of um, creativity, what are some of the things that have really inspired you about our industry as we head out of the pandemic? Well, having worked in this industry myself for the last 10 years, I mean, I'm, I'm just constantly blown away at how much new thinking even comes out of situations like this. I've always believed this was an innovative industry, whether it's the, you know, the culinarians who come in and create new products, whether it's the owners and operators who create new concepts. Um, I've seen examples of clearly, you know, finding new ways to be able to let people dine safely, whether it was, you know, new outdoor spaces that never existed before, whether it's, you know, people going, coming together, going to local municipalities, asking for things that never would have gotten approved in the past, like flowing out into curbs and, and sidewalks and being able to operate there. Um, new ways of delivering product and new ways to sell product. It, you know, we've all seen it there. I think it was brought up earlier. Brian mentioned it. I mean, people turning their restaurants into grocery stores at times to try to provide other products. 
I mean, so there are just a lot of things that constantly, you know, amaze me. And it just speaks to the creativity, the ingenuity, and the innovative spirit that exists in this industry. And um, I just think we'll continue to see that. And people, I think, have become even more empowered by that. And we'll uh, hopefully see more and more innovation going forward. But I think it's a great thing for this industry. Tom, uh, I don't know if you need to, we've been talking at you for a half hour. We need to grab a glass of water or, you know, it's five <laughs> o'clock somewhere. So or whatever you need to do there on the East Coast, we'll pretend yeah, it's four hours ahead. Um, so uh, while I gave you a, a chance to catch a breath there, let me, uh, and we start getting ready for Q&A. So everybody, um, our, uh, our 90 some attendees, uh, if you tap that Q&A button, it'll give you a chance to ask a question. And uh um, and I will ask it of Tom. Well, we're giving people a minute to, to, to enter that in. Tom, I have a question for you in uh, looking past this. And there will be another day. There will be some time where it feels maybe not exactly like 2019, but certainly more normal than, than today feels. What are the couple of things that we're going to have to come together on as an industry or that you see as the next steps beyond reopening um, that uh, the industries have to unite to, to help us move forward successfully? Well, let's talk about one that's probably the biggest challenge I think everyone's facing right now, which is the workforce. And I think uh, while we've got a lot of programs, and I talked a little bit about a few of them from the Educational Foundation, I think the industry is going to continue to face a workforce challenge. And I think there are many reasons for that. I think there are some that would like to think of that as being a very narrow issue and that, you know, if we just solve one piece of that, it'll get better. But I think it's a very complex issue. And I think anybody in this industry knows that. Um, but I think that by itself, um, it was an issue pre-pandemic. I think it's becoming a bigger issue now. And as I said, it's there's lots of reasons for it, not just, um, you know, the funding and the government aid that's out there, but the fact that, you know, there are not as many uh, opportunities for childcare for certain people in the workforce, or there's not quite the safety and security that some might want or need yet. And so I think there are a lot of things that are coming, that are happening right now, they're creating the situation and we got to do is think about ways we can help manage through that. Um, part of that I believe will be through innovation and could be equipment innovation, it could be back of house innovation, even maintaining some of the things we talked about already that will stick around around technology. I was speaking to an operator, independent operator just yesterday, and he was telling me that, you know, for him with his servers, because he's struggling to be able to have enough people, he's extending the, the server, you know, the amount of tables that they're having to handle at each shift, but he's enabling them with some new technology. So the good news is they're able to still perform the duties the way that the guests are looking for, but they're all, and, and able to make some more money, but they're you know having to obviously handle a bigger uh, part of the uh, location or the store. And so I think that just things like that are continue to be out there as things we're gonna have to come together to solve. Um, very closely connected to that is obviously wages. This is an industry that, you know, this is a hot topic. I, I kind of want to personally go on the record to say, you know, you oftentimes hear about the National Association and us potentially fighting certain things. Um, I think the, the headline for me here is it's really important for people to know that we're not opposed to things like minimum wage, but we need to be at the table and part of the conversation. And we need to be able to do that in a way that works for the entire industry, knowing that, you know, all of us on this phone operate uh, or on this call operate different types of restaurants. And so we have different things we're trying to solve for. So wages is a piece of it, but so are things like tip wage and tip credit. 
things that may not be important to some states, but that, that are to others. And so our focus is trying to make sure that our voice as an industry is heard and that we have that seat at the table so that people can hear the rationale around why this industry is a great industry, why the way that it maybe pays their employees is the way that it is um, versus some of the messages that get out there that tend to want to demonize some of the great work and the great things that we do. So I think that you know workforce, I think the wage uh, topic is important. I also think from an advocacy standpoint, immigration is going to be important. Uh, it's, a, it's a topic that's important to this country. I think it's an, a topic that's important to us as an industry. We need the, the workforce and we need to make sure obviously that we're creating the right environment for people to come into the country. But immigration is going to be an important, I think, topic for us uh, as part of the overall labor piece as well. And then last but not least, I believe that sustainability will come back. And it's, it's kind of gotten set on the back burner, but certainly pre-pandemic in my role at Cisco, we were talking a lot about sustainability, whether it's you know, the right footprint that we all create in our businesses, or it's the environment that allows people to do the right thing and to create the, the upside that comes from being thoughtful in how we use the resources uh, that this country has uh, and that the world has for that matter. So I think those are just a couple examples of things that I think we're going to need to continue to come together, both as an industry, but also uh, with our you know, legislators around the country who are going to be, uh, I think, challenged to make some of these decisions. I, I agree with you on all those, those fronts. And, and it's so hard to think about today when you're in the crisis and in the middle of the firefight, that there will be a tomorrow and a next month and a, and a six months from now. Um, so I think I appreciate you kind of laying that out just to get us to start to think, even though it's really hard to do in, in these timeframes. Um, uh, and, and count us on a partner on, on a lot of that. Our first question actually was about the hiring crisis. And I feel like you kind of answered the question. So Lori, if you want to ask a follow up to that, I'll put your question right up to the front. But while I give Lori a chance to see if she has a follow up, Tom, I know you have access to some of the best statistical minds on our industry. Uh, your team there at the National Restaurant Association and data and forecasting is great. I love working with them. Um, have they said, is this hiring crisis um, long-term and systemic in the system based on what they're seeing? Or have they given us any advice that this is a short-term adjusting of workforces? It's a, it's a really good question. And I, I don't know that we have the exact answer, but here's a, our, our, how we're thinking about it. As I mentioned earlier, some of the reasons that we're here um, are longer term issues. And what I mean by that is with the ups, you know, ups and downs, the closures that we were experiencing as an industry, if you wanted to work and wanted to be in the workforce, you needed to find work and you left the industry potentially to find that work because we were not stable over the last year. Those folks in some cases may have said, you know, I like now what I'm doing. I've learned something different. I like this industry that I've gone to. In some cases, we know people love the flexibility that comes from working in a restaurant and they like a lot of the components of it, the hospitality part of it. Sure, we think some of them will come back. So I think there's a balance there, at least on the folks that may have left the industry in the interim time uh, because we were not a, a safer, secure place to work at the time. I don't mean physically safe. I just mean that, you know, consistently uh, able to work. I think there's some other things going on out there that could bring people back sooner. Uh, obviously, these are happening state by state. I'm sure you've read about what's happening in place in Montana. Texas looks like they're going to pass a similar legislation. The idea there is reduce some of the, the government support that's been going to, you know, pay people who are sitting at home 
and encourage them to come back to work. And so they're literally shifting those funds to pay people to come back to work. I think that's going to be an interesting test to see if that, in fact, does bring people back into the industry more quickly. I think it's very creative. And look, I think it's hard for any of us to say we're against getting people back to work. Uh, so I think that could be a really great creative solution, but we, we will see over time. And then I think we just have to get back to consistency with schools back in session, not kind of optional, but schools back in session and daycare open so that those working parents who want to be able to uh, go back to work can do that safely and successfully. Okay. Lori, I gave Lori a chance to ask a follow-up to her hiring crisis question because we kind of got into it right before she asked. And this is her follow-up. With independence um, and the mom and pops already struggling with finances and recoveries, uh, they're now having to compete. Some of the chains are paying people to interview um, and other dollars and, and, the, um, and she feels some of the smaller restaurants can't compete with that. Any advice to um, folks who are just trying to, to get competitive wages and get people back to work? And then I'll, then I'll get to Chris's question next. Yeah, we, we've heard this a lot of late and, and not so much, you know, the chains versus the independence, but just what it takes to get people in the door right now. We're in the process of collecting a bunch of kind of learnings from around the country and best practices. And many of the best practices are, in fact, coming from our kind of bigger members. Um, and we're going to host a kind of webinar series and hopefully in a couple of weeks that gives everybody the opportunity to come and just hear what's going on, some ideas on how people can, you know, bring folks back, what some of those tools, ideas might be. Not in many cases, and I've been on a few calls in the last week or so on this, uh, not all are financially. I mean, they're not all about paying somebody to come and, you know, interview or paying somebody to fill out an application. Some of them are creating the right environment for that to happen. Sometimes that's scheduling. Sometimes that's uh, more to do with the, the, um, the ease of being able to sign up and, and fill out an application. Everything from drive-through applications to, you know, being able to do them all online. So a lot of ideas that are coming out of that beyond just having to pay more uh, to get people in the door. So probably best to see where all that comes together. And then uh, hopefully there'll be some great ideas for everyone. Uh, I love that many of you have my text and you're texting me questions, but it's hard for me to read the phone and read the screen and, and pay attention to Tom. Please put them in the Q&A and uh, you can text me afterwards and say, how dare you miss my question? Sorry about that. Um, I'm going to go to Chris's question and, and, and uh, Tom, I haven't had a chance to travel the country because of the restrictions, but in Washington, the streeteries or the parklets or the ability to dine outside really created one, a lifeline for many operators. And um, I think really created cool communities at a time when we couldn't connect inside to be able to see that our streets still have life. Um, is there any kind of national push or national branding to, to help those kind of ideas move forward is Chris's question. It's a, it's a really good question. I, I would say we I, we haven't focused on that as a national program, but I think it's it's something that I'll take back as part of this discussion around, again, creating the safe environment for people to come back to restaurants. I love the idea of just not even safe, but fun. We know that people are, there's all this pent up demand to get back out to restaurants. And a big reason for that, as we all know, is we enjoy it, right? We like being out there with friends and family celebrating. And so anything that gets people feeling like they can do this and they can do it more comfortably, including, you know, being outside and creating that kind of new environment is a great idea. So I'll take that back and we'll talk about as part of the marketing campaigns we're kicking around, whether we shouldn't make sure we just don't talk about the safety piece of it, but also the enjoyment piece that comes from that. 
I don't know if you're seeing this in, in the Washington, in Washington state, but we are seeing some communities laxing those rules for a much longer term. I won't go as far as saying permanently, but we're seeing places that again allowed, whether it's you know streets to open up or even just relaxing some of the rules around uh, you know gatherings, et cetera, that uh, may become you know certainly a longer period of time, whether it's full time or not, I don't know. Um, a question from uh, probably from a hotelier, uh, but we're the hospitality association. We represent entertainment. Uh, lodging and restaurants here in in Washington State, um, and uh, and a lot of our lodging has been left out of the the restaurant revitalization fund. So I think the question from the operator is: Is there a possibility of the thirty three and a half F and B revenue requirement to be eligible for hotels to to pursue the revitalization fund to be changed? And then I'll follow that up. Um, and the hotels are out with kind of a hotel program. Uh, any partnership with those in, in supporting of our of our brothers and sisters on the lodging side? So, so I'll I'll start by probably the easy one, but probably not the answer anyone wants to hear. Is I think the changing much that was written in the restaurant revitalization fund is is probably not going to happen. And the reason I can say that fairly definitively is we we worked incredibly hard to get a few things through there, and tried to get a few additional things through that we thought were also very important. Um, I'll give the example of that is we pushed hard for, uh, as you know, it limits to 20 or less locations. And we asked, even if someone owns more than 20, let's say you own, we have literally members who own 22, 24 locations, and they are not given the opportunity to participate. We said, couldn't you give them the opportunity to participate on their first 20, just so that we level the playing field and we couldn't get that change through. So I think the idea that we're going to extend it or open it up to additional groups is probably not going to happen. Um, but, you know, it's, it's something we, you know, we continue to talk about the need is, is great everywhere. As it relates to do we work, you know, a lot with the lodging industry, I work closely with AHLA, uh, Chip and I have been in quite a few conversations, so we're working together on a lot of national uh, ideas and programs. We generally are always there to support each other on legislative issues, and uh, also I've recently talked to the whole group, and so I'm doing what I can to make sure I know what it is that uh, the needs are of those organizations and anything we can do to support them, because most of them obviously are also restaurant operators. Uh, we want to be able to do that. And thank you for that approach, uh, Tom. That means a lot to many of our of our hoteliers. Um, another question: Going back to uh, the workforce, um, is there any as the as the National Restaurant Association? Sean, you know better than type NRA. Is the National Restaurant Association working to engage the younger generation of non-experienced workers to come into our industry and attract attract the youth to hospitality and, and restaurants uh, to help fill the void that we're experiencing? Absolutely, and this would be one of those passion areas for me because I, when I came in, I knew a lot about the National Restaurant Association given my past kind of 10 years in the industry but I didn't know as much about the National Restaurant Association's Educational Foundation. And this is an area that if you're not aware, I'd encourage you to, you know, even just go on the website and learn more about it. But there are a couple of key programs here. One's called uh, ProStart, which I know you're very familiar with, Anthony, and, and probably many of you there are in Washington State, but it gives high school uh, career and technical education and culinary arts and restaurant management to about 130,000 high school students uh, every year. 
So that that's a program that we're continuing. Obviously, we like everyone have been challenged to do that in person, but it's a really great program and something that we need to continue to, to build on. We also have our Restaurant Ready and Hopes program. It partners with you know, community-based organizations across the country to focus on opportunity youth, as well as these kind of justice-involved individuals so that they can get the skills training they need to enter the workforce in our industry. We obviously support military uh, service members and veterans who might have an interest in coming into the space with training in culinary arts and restaurant management. We also have about a million dollars a year in scholarship. We provide anyone who wants to pursue a degree in hospitality, food service, or restaurant management. And then last but not least, we have programs we work on with the U.S. Department of uh, Labor around restaurant management and specifically line cook apprenticeships. So those are just a couple of the examples of things we're doing there. But we are, we are talking more and more. Uh, our Multicultural Food Service and Hospitality Alliance group, we've talked about new equity-based programs to attract and ideally retain uh, more underrepresented groups, whether it's women, minority owned, uh, or just folks who wanna enter this industry and maybe not know why it's a good thing for them. Uh, and I love our industry for that. All those opportunities we bring, I think that's what gets me excited every morning about the dreams and the opportunities we provide. I'm um, reading a longer question. So give me a little patience or grace here, Tom, while I read it. Without further financial support, uh, how do restaurants recover from lost revenue going forward? It may take a long time for us to get back to pre-pandemic sales and the ability to pay rent and debt built up during, oh, excuse me, and the ability to pay rents at pre-pandemic levels. Can we try that again, Tom, or did that make sense? No, I think, that, I mean, I wish I had the, the answer, right? I mean, I think We've been we've been working lots of different angles, trying to create the the environment and the opportunity for people to recover as quickly as possible. And as we already said, relief only going to be good as so. Uh, I think it's going to require you know continued um, engagement with the the consumer in the area. Uh, you know the guests, in my opinion, guests of the restaurant industry have been incredibly generous over this last year. Uh, I know there are so many great examples of where people have come out or supported restaurants during this time of need um, when maybe it wasn't easy to do, right? I mean, taking out meals more frequently or, or doing a lot of things. That never means that it was enough or that it's gonna satisfy everyone's needs or situation. Uh, I think we just need to continue to keep the message out there, remind people how important we are as an industry to the communities we all live and work in. I think people genuinely know that, they believe it. I think that you know, what's happened over the last year has restaurants at a really good spot, meaning people understand and feel the, the importance of the industry and they miss it desperately. Um, but I don't think we can talk about it enough. Like anything, if the conversation starts to wane, then people say, well, things must be okay. It must be back to normal. And obviously we're not there yet. So I think it's a communication messaging, something we're also talking about on a national level is how do we reinforce that? Um, but I think it just comes down to educating people on why this industry is so important. You know, I think there's still a, probably a handful, maybe a lot more than that, who think that this industry makes a lot of money. We know, and those of you that operate restaurants know it's a very low margin, very challenging business. And we do it because we love the business. We love the hospitality part of it. And so I think that any ways, any opportunities we all have, whether that's nationally, locally, in your communities to reinforce and educate people about that is going to help. And because uh, like at the end of the day, people, you need people in the restaurants to drive the revenue. And that's the fastest way to get everyone back on track. The rest of it's, you know, we're going to work hard at it, but that's the 
we know that's if there's a silver bullet it's getting people back into restaurants fully agree uh tom I, I there's a lot of times where uh on the on the liberal wacky west coast i hear why are you connected with the national restaurant association and like you do a great job of representing the whole country but if ever was a year I, I shouldn't have to sell it's this year the job that your team did on the on the triple p and getting higher uh refunds on uh, for hospitality and then the restaurant revitalization fund and 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 I mean, your team is always great but but this year i think went above and beyond and if you don't get to talk to all uh, 14,000 restaurants out here in washington on their behalf can i say thank you to you and your team for all the work there'll be more restaurants open than than would have been otherwise uh, because of your work and so thank you uh, for all of that um any last questions from our panelists No, just thank you, Tom, for your leadership, uh, as well as Anthony at the Washington Hospitality Association for fighting for our small businesses. Thank you. Thank you all very much. It's great to be here with you, and uh, thank you for everything you're doing. Obviously, you all are the ones that are on the you know front line every day and making this happen, and uh, our, we're here to serve you, and we're here to serve every restaurant. So please take advantage of everything we have to offer, and Anthony, thanks for your partnership. Washington State and you have been a great partner for for us as well. So thank you. We do love working with you. Any other final thoughts, Tom, before uh, we step into into spring and summer? Let's just uh, keep sending the positive vibes and the messages. And uh, we know everybody wants to get out and enjoy your restaurants and spend time with all of you. And uh, don't ever be shy if there's something you need from us, uh, whether it's through Anthony or directly, just let us know. We're here to serve you and support you. Well, Tom, you're welcome to stay for the next portion of our, of our podcast, but I know your time is valuable and you're trying to serve 52 different areas, not just ours. So you're welcome to stay, but I understand if, if you have to run. Thank you so much. Thank you all very much. Great to be with you. I'll head out. Um, in addition to the great work of Tom's team, um, our uh, state government affairs team has been incredible. Um, and uh, yes, at the end of the day, we'd all like to be open. Um, and but we did have one heck of a session and Katie, you, Julia, Sam, Danny, Kim, uh, uh, everyone on the team. I, I know I just forgot to and I'm going to get penalty for that. Uh, Jordan, um, uh, just incredible this session. Um, can you give those on the call a, a, a wrap up on on some of the session highlights and uh, and uh, any questions members might have on on where the legislature goes from here? I would love to. Next slide, Matt. <laughs> so this legislative session, um, first of all, as many of you know, was virtual. So our government affairs committee worked with us prior to session to really narrow um, our legislative focus into three categories. Uh, those were relief, recovery, and the relaunch of our industry. As you can see, we were pretty stinking successful in terms of our main priorities. I'm really focusing on relief and then a couple other different major topics. The state legislature had priorities of its own. Uh, they planned to focus on uh, statewide COVID recovery and response. 
Um, they had an intent to focus on climate change um, related policy, as well as making sure that they were looking um, at every piece of policy through a lens of equity. And then finally, their ultimate goal was to pass a balanced budget for the upcoming biennium. Uh, they well, they tried to have a narrow focus. Uh, they were not successful in that and ended up um, running several pieces of legislation that did not fit into those categories. And so as a team uh, in an odd virtual session, something we had never experienced before, um, we really operated uh, in a normal workload on top of also trying to get a normal session workload on top of also trying to get the industry reopened. So today I'm just going to really touch on the about top 10, maybe 11 bills that I think um, were the most significant wins for our restaurant specific members. Um, we did far more than this list entails. Um, and that will all be, um, it's been sent out as a legislative review already, but will also be um, sent out many more times to really let this membership know what we worked on um, as a whole over session. So at the beginning of session, we were able to um, work on a key piece of legislation, Senate Bill 5114, which would have reopened Washington. We were shut down when this bill was introduced um, to 25% capacity and then also give power back to the legislature. This was a bipartisan effort sponsored by Senator Mullet from Issaquah and Senator Braun from the Centralia area. And while this bill ultimately was not able to pass, it was a great messaging point for our industry and gave us a lot of opportunities to talk about our need for recovery and relief and did get us reopened in a, a small capacity in the late winter, early spring. I think the two most significant bills that we worked on, and when I say we, I really want to give a lot of credit to our state government affairs director, Julia Gorton. Um, she was able to put all of her focus into unemployment insurance relief and the very first bill that passed this year and was signed by the governor was Senate Bill 5061, which provided $1.73 billion in unemployment insurance relief for 2020, 2021 insurance rates. At the end of session, she was also able to help pass Senate Bill 5478, which provided an additional $500 million in relief for uh, 2022 unemployment insurance rates. And then she will continue to work this issue alongside the team um, for further unemployment insurance relief. And we know how hard hit everyone's been by those uh, increased rates and so we're continu continuing to work these issues. We were also able to pass a liquor license renewal fee waiver. So if your license was up for renewal uh, in April 1st of this year, all the way through March 31st of 2022. Uh, you do not need to pay that license renewal fee. Um, that applied to 19 different categories of licenses. So it did impact the vast majority of our members and provided you know, upwards of $2,000 in relief um, for one of the most expensive renewal fees that we pay. One of the exciting pieces of legislation we were able to get through the finish line was House Bill 1480 which on top of extending the provision to allow cocktails, beer and wine to go, also gave authority to the Liquor and Cannabis Board to continue to work on rules to extend outdoor service areas, as well as loosen meal restrictions for um, 
spirits, rare and wine licensees. So there's still work to do in terms of rules for this bill, um, but all of that was a pretty significant win and cocktails to go um, are now possible through July 1st of 2023 uh, with the ability to hopefully make that permanent in the 2023 legislative session. Uh, the bill uh, had a provision uh, to have a study done in 2022 to really look at these allowances and how they've impacted the industry and their communities. And we feel fairly confident uh, that we will be able to make this permanent in the year 2023, which is pretty stinking exciting. We also worked on a handful of other wins. Uh, House Bill 1332 allowed business owners to go into a payment plan for property taxes, which were due April 30th. Uh, we were able to pass this bill with about a week and a half to go uh, and uh, gave out those business owners that pay that significant property tax bill in, in April uh, the ability to go on a payment plan that did not have the significant interest and penalties normally associated with those payment plans. So that was a win. We also secured $12 million for tourism in the final budget. Uh, so hopefully we can start generating tourism marketing, getting tourists um, to travel not only around our state, but also from out of state into Washington. We had three significant defeats. Uh, we, we killed some bills, which, is, which always feels just as good as passing them. Uh, the first one was the sugary beverage tax bill, which would have doubled the cost of a five gallon bib of soda, uh, normally about $85, making it cost um, about $160. We, with the help of all of you, were able to kill that bill in committee um, and provide some messaging that please don't raise sugary beverage taxes ever. <laughs> I think the biggest defeat that we had was House Bill 1076, which was key TAM. This bill would have allowed third party relators, so private parties and employees to um, file lawsuits against employers for uh, workplace safety violations, labor law violations, pretty much anything that LNI oversees, um, you would have been able to have a private lawsuit filed against your business, um, which is obviously extremely problematic. This is not the first year we've had to deal with this particular bill and we know it won't be the last. So this is something that we are going to continue to focus on and you'll continue to see outreach from us as we educate lawmakers on why KETAM is a no-go for the state of Washington. And then lastly, we were able to defeat um, a bill that would have allowed private in-home kitchens to cater and make food, uh, sell food. The biggest problem for us with this bill was that these um, microenterprise kitchens would not have to follow the multitude of food safety restrictions that are placed on our businesses. We were able to get amendments on the bill that did provide food safety sideboards for an in-home kitchen, as well as remove catering but at the end of the day, the Senate just said, nope, we're not ready for this concept. Um, and that bill died at the very end of session. We do also expect this bill to return and we'll continue to work on that effort. So in my very long-winded approach to all of our wins, uh, like I said, this is a pretty small picture of all of the um, bills that we worked on and things we were able to accomplish in what I think our team would all agree would be the toughest session any of us have ever worked. Uh, we desperately hope and have full faith that they'll be back in person next year, which should make our jobs slightly easier. 
Um, I have to add that really without the work of our members, we would not have had the level of, of success that we did. We saw engagement from January all the way to the end of April. Uh, the virtual session did create more opportunities for engagement. So we're really proud of that, proud of all of you for helping uh, get us to the finish line. And we're excited about the continued engagement in upcoming sessions and throughout the rest of the year. Katie, you and your uh, team have been fantastic. I, I think you went over, I don't know, it was about roughly 15 bills there, it looked like. But what people don't know is you tracked well over 500 actively worked, um, negotiated, defended, amended, made sure the clarified uh, your team was spectacular. I don't see any questions in the Q&A. Um, so while I'm buying everyone a minute to ask them, if you can stop sharing the screen, uh, Matt. Um, I do want to thank our panelists before uh, everyone hangs up, uh, not only just for what you did today and on being the panel, Jenny, Brett, uh, Ron, and uh, Brian, if you want to turn on your, your faces so we can see uh, uh, your beautiful faces there. Thanks for all your work, uh, Brett, on the national level, all the national conferences, all the national work to make sure the Washington voice is heard. Jenny, you've just been spectacular on government affairs this year. Ron, it's an honor to have you serve as my chair. Uh, and Brian, uh, as the chair of government affairs, is one of the three chairs of government affairs and your work on the Education Foundation and otherwise, uh, we very much appreciate you. So thank you for everything you do. And I was trying to buy anyone any other questions uh, that they might've had this session and I don't see them. So Katie, if somebody wants a summary of these, are we gonna be doing a legislative review? So, because beyond this, there are laws people are gonna have to adjust for and move forward. And when will that come out? So normally our legislative review comes out in June. I do anticipate that to happen this year. So keep your eye out. Um, and if you are looking for an overall recap now, I'm happy to share my email and send out our legislative news from two weeks ago. We'll get that in right now. And if you're watching um, uh, online, you can email uh, podcast at wahospitality.org and ask any follow-up questions. So we are turning this into a podcast and uh, you'll be able to, uh, if you like what you heard and you want your coworkers or other operators to hear it, feel free to send on the links when those come out. I hope that the next time we all together, we've heard something, a great plan from the governor to get us open. That's what we're all trying to have happen now. That would be the biggest win we can have happen and uh, start booking Ron's hotels with events this summer and fill up uh, Jenny's restaurants uh, inside since she can't get outside as we talked earlier. So. Um, I'm looking forward to that kind of news. Wouldn't that be great? So let's cross our fingers and work hard. And it's an honor to serve all of you. Thanks for what you do for the association, the industry, and our communities. Everyone have a great May. Thanks for listening to the Washington Hospitality Industry Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, wahospitality.org, where you can learn more about the restaurant and lodging industries and the Washington Hospitality Association. Be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or iHeartRadio so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Thank you so much for that effort. Until next time.